I pray, Lord, that this morning we will see Jesus. We will see Jesus so clearly that we can't help but share him with everyone we come in contact with. Bless the reading of your word. Bless the hearing of your word. And Father, as Revelation presents, bless the doing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Would you take your Bible and go to the gospel according to Samuel? Gospel according to Samuel? Yeah, 2 Samuel. We're going to the gospel according to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now you may say, Pastor, I know of the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and that guy. Yes, John. I've never heard of the gospel in 2 Samuel. Well, you've probably read right past a particular passage, a particular, not parable, but an actual account that might have just slipped you idly by and tonight, or rather today, if I do say tonight when it's day, you have to forgive me. I preach just about every night of the week uh, with one or two nights in between off, so I'm used to saying tonight, you, you do understand, yeah? Thank you. You will have mercy on me, right? Amen. But when we get to 2 Samuel 9, notice this story. And I pray that you will see the gospel in a way that you probably haven't seen before. Or maybe so. You tell me on the way out how it speaks to you. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Very well. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now notice what it says. Now who? Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left? Of the house of who? Saul. Who I may show him what, everyone? For whose sake? There's a lot here in this one verse. Let's just unpack it briefly. We have the very, uh, the, the very central figure here who is King David. He is no longer the little shepherd boy. He is now the king of Israel. He's been king for quite some time now, and he probably wakes up in the middle of the night or at some point, and he remembers a pact that he had made with his best friend. Who? Jonathan. Jonathan understood that God had rejected his father Saul. Jonathan understood that God had selected David to rule in Saul's place. Jonathan understood that though he was destined to be the king of Israel, he humbled himself and accepted God's will and received with gladness. In fact, David became his best friend. The Bible presents the relationship between David and Jonathan as that type of friend that sticks closer than a brother. It was intimate. It was close. It was, it was vibrant. It was meaningful. It was self-sacrificing. David lamented the death of his friend, Jonathan. 
And for some time, he had forgotten about the pact that Jonathan asked him to make back in 1 Samuel. Jonathan asked him and said, listen, please promise me that you're going to show kindness to my family, to my children, to my descendants. And David promised that he would look after them. He wakes up in this occasion. I don't have time to go into all of the details. I understand that I have to finish by 1.30, so I've got to cut it short. You laugh. Oh, no. All right, 1.45, fine. Now David wakes up and he's thinking, I have to, I have to, I haven't yet fulfilled this commitment I made, this covenant, this pact that I had with my friend, Jonathan. And so he wakes up and he, ate, he makes the inquiry, is there anyone of the house of Saul who I might show kindness? And he, quant- he, he specifies here why or for what reason? For his love, for his friend, Jonathan. Verse 2. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So they, so they had called him to David. The king said unto him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. I'm reading New King James, if that's okay. Verse 3. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3, David now introduces a new element. And this is really the platform. This is uh, where we're going to branch off of this morning. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness? And now David says something unique. The kindness, finish it, of God. He doesn't repeat Kindness for Jonathan's sake. He doesn't say, I just want, I just want, I, you know, I'm feeling good today. I want to do something good for someone. I, I, Saul was, was like a father to me. No, 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 no. Right now, before Ziba, he wants Ziba and everyone to know this is of, of, of utter importance. We are looking for someone that he wants to show not just average kindness. He doesn't just want to forgive someone's debt. He doesn't just want to honor someone with, with a, a, a royal letter or, 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 or a, a, a banquet at the king's table for one evening. Notice, notice. He says he wants to show the kindness of God. Now that's very important because from here on out, whatever happens in this story we are going to see exemplified the kindness of God. Simple. Continuing on. And Ziba said to him, There is still a son of who? Jonathan, who is what? Lame of his feet. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Who was Jonathan to David? Best friend. Close friend. So imagine, does David know that his friend lost his life in battle against the Philistines many years before? Yes or no? How did he feel about that? 
How did he feel? How do you suppose David felt about the news, the tidings, when he learns that not just Saul died, but Jonathan died in that battle in Jezreel? He was upset, but he was, I heard it over here, devastated. His best friend has just passed away. Now, just think about it. When David finds out that his best friend, before dying, had a child. And that child is still alive. And to make matters even more heart-wrenching, he discovers that that child is lame, cannot walk. How do you suppose David feels to learn that his best friend has a son? Hmm? How do you suppose he felt? Joyful. Joyful. Would you agree? I'm, I'm overjoyed. Absolutely. Now, let, keep your finger there in 2 Samuel 9. Keep your finger there. Let's go just a few chapters before. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And notice something here. We've got to put a little bit of meat to this back, background. We've got to get some background details about this son of Jonathan. You're in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Notice here what God's word says. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was what? Lame of his feet. He was how old? Five years old when the news or the tidings uh, about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse, that's babysitter, took him up and fled. And it so happened as she made haste. To flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was what? Mephibosheth. Now think about this. He, the boy is five years old. His father is in the battle uh, against the Philistines in the valley of Jezreel. His father has probably been camped against the Philistines for quite some time. He's only five years old. His pro- father hardly probably spent time with his son Mephibosheth. His father loses his life in that battle. And when Saul discovers he's lost, Saul asks his armor bearer to take his life. His armor bearer refuses. What does Saul wind up doing? He falls on his own sword, commits suicide. Now the Philistines have just... The the king of Israel is dead. Who is the rightful heir now to the throne if the king is dead? Jonathan. But there's a problem. Jonathan is also dead. So now who does the throne belong to? Mephibosheth. But the problem is Mephibosheth is only five years old. He can't defend himself. And when the nurse, his babysitter, finds out, oh no, the the army of the Philistines are going to come. They're going to come and destroy him because they're going to wipe out any trace of Saul's family. So she takes him up and she flees. I don't know what kind of fall. I don't know if he fell down a cliff. I don't know how bad it was. But what we do know is that he wound up lame, crippled. From the age of five, he was not able to walk again. Every day that he wakes up, every day that he realizes his legs won't work, 
is a fresh reminder that he was destined for greatness. He was destined to sit on a throne. But because of the fact that he was royalty, he had to flee for his life. And he, that caused him to lose the ability to walk. From that point on, Mephibosheth has one work, one purpose, and that is to escape, is to uh, eliminate, is to uh, change his identity. He does not want to be discovered. He does not want to be identified. He doesn't want anyone to know that Saul's family still has an heir to the throne because he feels that the moment that the king would find out, they would have him what? What do you think? Killed. Now let's go back to, second, uh, to chapter 9. 2 Samuel a, uh, chapter 9. Now notice here. Now, now we're back to the king's palace. We're there with Ziba, King David. King David wants to find out, is there someone from Saul's house? He discovers that Jonathan, his best friend, has a son. And poor boy is lame. Verse 4. 2 Samuel 9, verse 4. It says this. So the king, so the king said to him, very logical question. Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So we have his address. We know where he's at. Pop that in your GPS. Let's go grab him. Now, Machir is in Lodabar. He's at Machir's house. And all of a sudden, now in the palace the king discovers his identity and his locality. So now he sends to fetch him. Notice verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now, he had him brought. I just want you to think about Mephibosheth for a minute. He's probably in, in, in Makir's house. Let's just suppose he's sitting out in his porch, maybe drinking some grape juice or pomegranate juice. I don't know. He can't walk. He's sitting on the chair and he's talking with, with, with Makir. Makir lives in Lodabar. It's a dusty place uh, quite some distance from Jerusalem. Now, in the distance, they probably hear the noise of, of uh, an approaching uh, number of horses. And, and they probably see the rising smoke. And, and in the distance, they're wondering, uh, Mephibosheth is asking Makir, Hey, are you expecting anyone? No, I'm, I'm really not. Well, I wonder who's coming this way. And it doesn't take very long for them to see that those are soldiers from the royal soldiers that are coming towards Makir's house. How do you think Mephibosheth feels? How, how do you think he starts to feel right now? Scared. He's afraid. 
Oh no, did you tell them? How did they discover? Why are they coming? Makir is probably trying to calm them down. Don't worry, Mephibosheth, we don't know what's going on. Maybe they're lost. Maybe they need directions. I don't know. Let, listen, I'll have you, come here, take Mephibosheth inside. And so some, some of the others there carry him inside and says, listen, you just be quiet. I'll see what they want and I'll let them, I'll send them on their way. Mephibosheth is frightened. But he probably, in that time, he, you know, he probably hears the whole conversation of the soldiers when they come and they talk to Makir. We're here on orders from the king. We understand that you have a guest in your house. We know that Mephibosheth is here. We're not leaving. The king wants to see him right away. Can you just imagine how Mephibosheth is thinking? How he's feeling? He's thinking... They found me. It's over. My life has been reduced to this. Lived so many years as a fugitive. And finally, they found me. Obviously, they did find him. Look at verse 6. They brought him to King David. Just imagine that ride from Lodabar to the king's palace. He's in a carriage. He can't walk. He can't run. He can't flee. He can't, he can't escape for his life. He is helpless and he is hopeless. And finally, they make it to the king's palace. Verse 6. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And just when he's probably thinking, how I can still save my life. Maybe there's a a mix-up in identity. Maybe they don't know that it is me. Maybe there is still hope yet. Maybe I can plead for my life. Maybe the king doesn't have a clue who I am. And maybe he'll have mercy on my handicapped condition. Just then, he hears the voice of King David thunder from the throne. Mephibosheth. And he answers... Here is your servant. David, before David, is his best friend's son. He sees him frail, scared, shaking, trembling, fearing. David must know what is going through the mind of Mephibosheth. David must think he believes he's coming here to die. It's his best friend's son. David probably wants to jump up from that throne and run down and grab him and embrace him. But because he is the king, he must remain at a certain level of dignity. And Notice. This, this really is beautiful. Are, are, are you awake still? Because it's just going to radically change right here. 
Look at verse 7. So David said to him, Do not what? Don't be afraid. When Jesus was coming to the disciples on that ship in that stormy night, and they were fearing for their lives, and they thought they seen a ghost in Jesus, the very first thing that Jesus said to them is what? Fear not. Are you afraid today? I know Mephibosheth was afraid. He was fearing for his life. And the very first words that come out of the mouth of King David is don't be afraid. But look, look at this. Look at this. Because he, he says more. He says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you what, everyone? Kindness for your father's sake. I, I wonder if Mephibosheth is, is probably scratching his head. Er, 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 er. My father's sake. How, how does king, why would you show me kindness for my father's sake? See, I know that Mephibosheth had no idea the kind of relationship David and, and Jonathan had. Because the moment he would have been there, the moment he would have been brought before David, he would have said, King David, I'm Jonathan's Son, your best friend. He doesn't do that. Why? Because he has no clue. He thinks David is an enemy. He thinks David is the one that is going to execute him. Take his life. Take his freedom. Take his liberty. Take everything from him. And David wants to show him the absolute opposite. David says to him, Fear not. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And if that's not enough, notice. And I will return to you, how much? How much? All. Notice, I will return to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And if that's not enough, you shall eat bread. Where? At my table. How often? Think about that. Mephibosheth, in less than five minutes, was living from house to house, going to whoever would house him, whoever would keep him, and probably, probably surviving on, on whatever little food he could find, begging for bread, probably sitting at the entry of whatever gate he could, trying to su supply his needs. And in less than five minutes, he comes to the king's palace, thinking he's coming there to die, and the king, in just a matter of fraction of a minute, tells him, fear not, for I will show you kindness for your father's sake. He's my best friend. You don't know it, but we're t we'll talk about this. Don't worry. And I will, I will return to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. Do you guys know how much land that was? I don't know, but it was a lot. And if that's not enough, he didn't just get an invitation to one banquet. He had... Actually, it, it, it gets better. It gets better. It gets better. Notice what happens here. Are you excited yet? Okay, good, good, good. good. Look, look at verse 8. Because Mephibosheth is pinching himself. No, no, no. This, this cannot be. 
Something is wrong. Look at verse 8. Then he bowed himself and said, notice, notice, what is your servant that you should look upon such a what, everyone? Dead dog as who? How do you like that for self-esteem? He considered himself a dead. Basically, let me translate that in layman terms. Listen, man, if you're going to kill me, get it over with. Just rip it off like a band-aid. Don't toy with me. Stop playing with me. I know why I'm here. I'm here to die. And David doesn't even, doesn't even acknowledge it. David doesn't even pay any money. It's as if he didn't. Eh, poor little kid. He doesn't know. You know. Notice what happens in verse 9. I'm telling you, this gets better. This gets better. Are you awake? Okay. Notice verse 9. And the king called to Ziba. Notice what happens. Mephibosheth just says, listen, if you're, if you're going to kill me, get, get it over with. I'm a dead dog already. I'm a dead, I mean, it's bad enough to consider yourself a dog. He thought he considered himself a dead dog already. Anyways, and the king called to Ziba, Saul's servants, and said to him, notice, I have given to your master's son all that belong to, to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants Shall what, everyone? Work the land for him. And you shall bring in, that's gather up, the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, listen, Ziba, Mephibosheth, your master's son shall eat bread at my table. How often? Always. He said, the first time, and you will eat at my table continually. Now he tells Ziba, he will always eat at my table. Listen, oh, look, look, look at this, look at this. It, it continues and it says this. Now Ziba had how many sons? And how many servants? What's the total? Plus Ziba? Okay, in less than five minutes, in less than five minutes, Mephibosheth went from having to beg for food to having 36 servants so that he'd always have his tortillas, he'd always have his fajitas, his collard greens, his mashed potatoes, his cornbread, you name it. In less than five minutes, his life was radically changed. What's the point here? Remember, remember, David said, is there yet anyone that I might show the kindness of who? God. I'm sorry, I, I, I got to calm myself down. I shouldn't have that much excitement on the, first, on the first message. I get myself excited about this because this is our story. This is our experience. Verse 11, verse 11, it says this. Then Ziba said to the king, notice what happens. I, I, I don't know if you're like me. I visualize what's going on. For being a blind man, I have a very vivid uh, imagination. It says this. Then Seba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. 
And then, as Ziba is trying to suck up to the king, yes, you know, the king interrupts him, and notice what he says. As for Ziba, said the king. Notice what he says. Notice what he says. He shall eat at my table like what? Like what? One of the king's sons. I don't know if you guys are picking up what the Lord has just thrown out. The first thing, the king tells Mephibosheth, you will eat continually at my table. Reminds Seba, he will always eat at my table. He didn't say it once. He didn't say it twice. He interrupted Ziba a third time and says, Hey, Ziba, Mephibosheth will sit and eat at my table just as Absalom, just as, as Abnon, uh, like one of the sons of the king. Why? Is the story recorded? Why does God take a valuable space to take a whole chapter to present this story and to bring out these details? Exactly. That's precisely. Look at verse 12. I want you to get... Just to have a concept of approximately how long Mephibosheth had been fleeing as a fugitive. Verse 12, it says this. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah or Micah or however you want to say that. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelled in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. What an incredible story. This is my story. When Mephibosheth had this encounter with the king, he already has a young child. So we, we're going to have to give Mephibosheth an age. Can you help me? How old do you suppose Mephibosheth was when he had this encounter with the king? 25? 37? We got 38. Do I got a 38 over here? Over here. No. Let's just say he was, let's meet halfway. Uh, 25 to 37, uh, help me out. 31? 31? Six and six, right? Yeah, right around there. So let's say he's 30 years old. He's been fleeing since he was five years old. 25 years running. Running from the king who he thought wanted to kill him. When in actuality, 
the king wanted to bless him far beyond what he could imagine. Several key figures in this story. One is David. King David. Who does he represent? He represents God. Can we be a little more specific? Maybe let me help you. Let me help you. Who does Jonathan represent? Jonathan was the son of the king who lost his life so that his son could be received. So that his son could be welcomed. So that his son could sit at the king's table just as one of the sons of the king. Who does Jonathan represent? So who does David represent? God the Father. Who does Ziba represent? Actually, I'll do Ziba in a minute. Let's just go straight to Mephibosheth. Who does Mephibosheth represent? For me, Mephibosheth represents that man that stares at me every day in the mirror. For a number of years, I ran from God. Because I thought that the moment I give my life to Jesus, my life is just going to be a bunch of boringness. I'll have to go to church and I'll have to sing hymns and I'll have to eat tofu. It's a life of do nots and thou shalt nots and, 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 and drudgery. As opposed to the world which offered me all kinds of pleasures and, and fun forevermore. I bit that hook. And for over 12 years, I spent my life very far from God. And today I suffer the consequence, not the punishment, the consequence of my own actions. I shouldn't be as blind as I am today. I was born October 7th, 1970-something in the island of Cuba. Age is just a number, and mine is unlisted. So, when I was born, I was born completely blind. My, mo- my mother is here. You can, during lunch, get more details. Because of time, oh, I've got another hour. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. He says, you can preach, Pastor. We'll be eating. <laughs> By the way, this is cruelty. Very few times in, my mini- in, in, in ministry, over, over 17 years of ministry, do I have the opportunity to preach and smell the food <laughs> while I'm preaching. That is, by in, by, that is not accidental. That must be by design. That, I mean, that, forget the clock, forget the, 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 the bell, forget the cut. They just, the aroma. Every, it works every time, doesn't it, Pastor? Yes, it does. <laughs> Lucky for me, I can't smell. So, no. <laughs> I was healed when I was 14 months old. It was a miraculous healing. Uh, 
at some other time I might go, I'll go into much more detail because of the time I, I won't right now. I was 14 months old. I didn't know. I don't remember being healed. I didn't discover that it was a miracle. I didn't believe that it was true. My parents, ever since I was little, they would tell me, Eddie, you were born blind. God healed you. God gave you the sight that you have. You're special. You're, you're, you know, and my name is Eddie, so that's special Ed, you know. You're, you're special. God has a plan for your life. And when I was eight and nine years old, all that seemed good. Oh, But when I became of age, 13, uh, and started to navigate the world uh, in a more independent manner, I started to question things. And life events took a turn to such a degree that I, I, joined, a, I joined a rap group. This was in the late 80s. I was, I was the beatboxer. I would do the funny... And do different stuff with the lips. I can't do it anymore. So my, He said, praise the Lord. Let's, let's just sing a, a verse of holy, 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 would you? To expel the demons. Uh, I was, uh, that, that led me into a world of darkness. That rap group, not very far into it. I was about 14, 15 years old. We needed a new rapper. And there was, we were auditioning some other people to, to join. And there was a guy, tall African-American by the name of Jamal. He came. And I remember that day. He came to, to, to where we were. He's like, yo, what's up? My name's Jamal and I'm an atheist. And I was kind of like the Peter in our clan, you know, the, the, the impetuous, uh, you know, stick my foot in my mouth all the time. Yeah. So I was the first one that said, yo, oh, that's cool, yo. My name's E and I'm Cuban. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're atheist. You're from Athens. I'm Cuban. I'm from Cuba. I didn't know back then what an atheist was. No idea. <laughs> I quickly found out. Long story short, I was convinced that God didn't do a miracle to begin with. I was convinced that my parents lied to me, that religion was a crutch for weak people. It was an invention of man to control the masses. It was a false hope. And I left. I left the side of Christ. And for a number of years, I didn't pray. I didn't believe. I openly rejected. I got into a life of drugs, alcohol, and everything in between. The year 1999, in a matter of five, six months, I nearly lost my, whole, my, my entire sight. Everything I had. Before then, I could see very well. I could drive. I could read. I could play sports. I could run my business. Uh, I could uh, uh, go grocery shopping with no problems. And in five months, I went to not even a able to read the newspaper in front of me, not able to do my bookkeeping and accounting, not able to run the business, not able to even go grocery shopping, even, let alone walk alone down a sidewalk. My eyes started to violently shake. They still do to this day. Not as bad as before. God is good, but... Um, it was so bad, I thought I had a tumor. I thought I was dying. 
brought me to have to discover what was the problem with me. And it was in, in that quest to find out, is it a tumor? Am I, do, am I, how long do I have to live? It was during those exams, October 30th, 1999, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, that I was told by one of the leading uh, neuroscientists there at Kellogg Eye Center that my sight is a literal miracle. I shouldn't see the little that I could see. The doctor went to explain how my optic nerves were dead, how my eyes and my brain were disconnected. He couldn't explain how I could see the little. I, was, I, I went to the doctor's visit that day to find out how come I see so little. And God, through that doctor, slaps me upside my head and says, boy, how come you see so much? That day, my life changed. I was in a very symbolic way, brought before King David, and I was very much like Mephibosheth, pleading for my life. I left that visit with no hope of any procedure or any treatment or any cure. I left that visit, October 30th, 1999, with the prospects that they can't explain how I can see, But I had another condition called, and I still do, called retinitis pigmentosa. And it's degenerated to such a degree that they estimated back then, 1999, that they gave me three to four years of sight. By the year 2003, I would be totally blind. It's 2018, and I haven't lost a, a, a little bit. Nothing. Because we serve a powerful God. We serve a risen Savior. We don't serve cunningly, we don't follow cunningly devised fables. God is real. What He did for Mephibosheth, what He did for me, He can do for you. Not only can He do for you, there's another fourth person in this story, and that's Ziba. Ziba was that link between King David and Mephibosheth. Ziba was that, per, that, that person, that sentinel of hope. Ziba was that instrument God used to bring Mephibosheth before the king. Mephibosheth, Ziba was an a, a Old Testament Andrew, if you will. He would bring people to Jesus. Mephibosheth was lost, hopeless. He would have remained in Makir's house until he was kicked out and he tried, I have to find another place. If it weren't for Ziba to do his part to make sure that Mephibosheth and the king had an encounter, you can be a Ziba. In fact, this week, you can be a Ziba. You can take these invitations. You can go to those Mephibosheths that surround you. They're in your workplace. They're in the grocery store. They're at the gas station. You go to those places, don't you? They're in your own home many times. Oftentimes, they might sleep right next to you. You can be that link. You can be that sentinel of hope. We will be here starting next Friday evening. Just one week. It's not a long time. It's not a four-week series as we used to do way back when. Now, it doesn't seem to be a common affair. 
and for many obvious reasons. But this will be a powerful week. This will be an experience through God's word in a very new, dynamic, engaging, meaningful, spirit-filled, Christ-centered way. You will never have a better opportunity to share Christ with someone than you do right now. You see, our world is rapidly changing. And if you aren't aware of all of the things that are happening, just come to the ultimate hope. You know why the gospel is such good news? Because the gospel, you have to compare it. You have to compare it with the bad news. If you only talk about the gospel, the good news, and you take no time to examine the bad news, the alternative, the gospel loses its power. You see, the reason why the everlasting gospel is so meaningful to us is because the alternative is depressing. It's, it's, it's not optional. I don't know for you, but for me, it's not, not optional. Jesus is coming soon. The devil knows that. And so Revelation 12, 17 tells us that the dragon is wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. That's you and that's me. I hope you understand that we're not just another denomination. I don't allow me to just speak to the house pastor uh, just really quickly. Jesus is coming soon. And he wants what he is going to do, he is going to do with or without us. In fact, you have to come this afternoon, just after lunch. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to go out. We're going to eat our food really quickly. And we're going to come right back here. Amen? Okay, that's only three of you. Amen? (laughs) You guys, I won't tell you. I I promise, this afternoon, it will be so... You may have never heard these things this afternoon. It's that powerful. And I pray that it will be encouraging to you. The title of these series, normally it's a, it's a 12-part series. I'm not going to give you 12 parts. Okay, I promise you. I'm only going to do it in one part. One part. I've kind of condensed the most important. And this afternoon, we're just going to give you the meat. Okay. No, no milk, although we like milk. I don't know about you. Soy milk, almond milk, rice milk. Amen? All right. Yeah, I may have been born at night, but not last night, okay? Jesus wants to prepare a world for his coming. Friends, we don't have much time to preach the everlasting gospel as we can today. The laws of our land still afford us listen to me, still afford us the right, the privilege, the opportunity to present these truths. You come this afternoon and you'll see a little segment of things that are taking place right here in California, in our very own legislature, here in California, in Sacramento, that are intending to shut us up, to silence us once and for all. You must come this afternoon. Amen? All right, that's five now. Okay, we're getting better. (laughs) I don't know. 
But we need a revival in our experience with the Lord. Is that okay if I play the piano? I'm going to have Pastor, Pastor Zach, I'd like for you to lead out this song. You have your hymnals in front of you, yeah? Let's turn to 633. And let's sing that, but I want you to sing it like you mean it. I'm going to try and make a joyful noise. But you sing it with power. All four stanzas. Follow the key changes. But on that fourth stanza, if you want to say, Lord, make me a zebra. I want to invite you to make a commitment. A commitment to invite more people to these meetings than you have any meetings in the past. So on the fourth stanza, I'm going to invite you to come to the front. That's a sign of commitment between you and the Lord. And that sign will be, Lord, use me. This week, help me to come in contact with Mephibosheth. Help me to find him everywhere. Give me the words to, spe- to say. Open the opportunity, Father, for us to do a great work here in Templeton. If that's your desire and that's your commitment, I invite you in the fourth stanza to make your way here to the front. I'm going to have Pastor Zach finish with that last prayer. Amen. Father in heaven, just thank you for a little foretaste of what an incredible day that will be. Oh God, thank you that we can have this incredible privilege to think of the boundless treasures that we get to invite people to experience your kindness. Father, people think that you are some king out to kill them and you want to give them life. You want to give them a gift. And Father, we pray that you'd give us your words. You'd give us your love. You'd show us how to share in a way that's meaningful, that would help people to want to experience the ultimate hope. Father, thank you for pouring out your spirit. Thank you for pouring out your spirit on Eddie this morning, for blessing us through him. Thank you for pouring out your spirit on each and every one of us as we go from this place, Father. May it be with our eyes fixed on Jesus, giving a little glimmer of hope in our own hearts and to be able to share that with as many people as possible. Thank you, Father. Bless our lunch and bless our time as we come back together afterwards. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.